You're listening to a podcast from River City Church of Jacksonville, Florida. For more audio and video podcasts, visit rccjacks.com. Okay. I jacked up my ankle. And so I can't, I could, I could probably walk. I did it the first service, but it was really, really sore. And, um, and so I'm going to be trying to do the talk from sitting. I don't know if I'm going to be able to do it, though. I might just have to get up eventually if I get excited. But I'm going to try to do it sitting down. But I'm not doing it for, like, effect, okay? I'm not trying to be Andy Stanley like at North Point because I know he sits on a stool. I'm not trying to be clever or in any way. My foot is throbbing right now. And, yes, I've had prayer for it. So don't bum rush the stage and try to heal me in the middle of my talk or afterwards, okay? If the talk starts going bad... Just trust me, like it's not your opportunity, it's not because of my ankle, it's because I'm just doing a bad job, all right? So, you know, Jesus' final words, go and make disciples of all nations, and you see that tattooed on people's bodies, you see that uh, on billboards when you drive down the road, go and make disciples, you know, our mantra for our church, go and make disciples, you go to churches and you see that, we are all about making disciples, famous words, right? Okay, besides Jesus in the Bible, Paul is probably the most famous person. You know, one of, you know he's written a ton of letters in the New Testament, the most, uh, and a very powerful guy when it comes to uh, moving in the power of the Spirit, very smart guy when it came to theology. A lot of our theology is based on actually the words of Paul uh, in, in the book of Romans and other books in the New Testament, letters that he wrote to the churches. But when, if I were to ask you, do you know what Paul's final words were? You probably wouldn't know. I didn't know. But the sermon today or the talk today are actually on his words. And I think there's a reason that we don't know what these words are. I think there's a reason. And so I'm going to tell you what that reason is. But first, I'm going to tell you a little bit about what's happening. Paul has been ministering uh, throughout uh, the area. He's heading to Jerusalem where he's been told by other cities, other towns, and places that if you go, you're going to be persecuted, you're going to be in jail, you're going to be killed. So, and his, this is his frame, frame of reference, okay, of what's happening. He's still going. He knows that he's supposed to go, and so he's heading that way. But along the way, he's stopping and seeing some churches, writing letters, and doing different things, okay? Well, he gets to this one location, this bay, and he decides, I'm going to call the, the uh, elders of the church in Ephesus together, and I'm going to talk to him. This is going to be the last time I'm going to see him. These are going to be the last words that I say to him. But I'm going to gather them together. And we're going to, I'm going to tell them what's most important for them to remember as they lead the church, as they grow the church. I mean, these are pretty important words, you'd think, right? You're thinking like, gosh, how could I have missed this in the New Testament? It's okay, so did I. But there's a reason why. All right? And so he would have, just so you know, he would have led these men to Christ. He would have discipled them, empowered them, and then appointed them to lead the church. I mean, in terms of relationship, these were his tight, tight, these were like his disciples in a lot of ways. The people that he, these men he was very, very close to. So that's the context of what Paul's getting ready to tell him. And so we see in that context this weightiness that whatever Paul tells him, I mean, if he even tells him something like, you know, hey, don't forget to comb your hair when you go out to do ministry. It's pretty heavy. Like, that would be a significant word. Now, thankfully, he didn't say that. He said something else. But we, in the same way, should weigh heavily, take notice, pay attention to what Paul's saying to these friends of his, okay? And, and, and again, the reason I think that we kind of skip over this in the church is because it has to do with money. I think that we miss this 
Because Paul's instruction to these leaders in Ephesus that he loves, that he cares about, he wants them to understand grace. And he says that one of the litmus, one of the litmus tests of understanding grace is if you're a generous giver. You know, already you just, somebody just checked out. You're like, oh, hell no, I'm not listening to this. It's a giving talk. I know. I know that's what you're thinking. But here's the thing. Here's the cool thing about God, about his desire for you that I want to express this morning. I mean, these are Paul's tight, tight friends. In the same way that Paul wants the best for them, for them to be equipped, for them to be empowered, God wants the best for us. And a lot of the giving talks that we hear, people will kind of come at you sideways a little bit. And they'll be like, oh, you need to be generous, you need to give, or God's going to get you. God is going to bring down the thunder hammer of Thor and crush you. He will smite you if you don't give. You know, and, and, when, and, and, and that works on your will. It's working on your will. It's, work, you know, it's like a fear deal but it's really aimed at your will. If you do, you better do this or God's gonna get you. Another way that people kind of approach giving that I don't think is the way God wants to, wants us to, is that he, he says, you know, you better be generous because there are all these poor people out there with all of these needs and you better give. You need to give. Please give to the weak and the needy. Please, please give. And what's that working on? Your emotions, Right? Yeah, it's like triggering your emotions. And you'll see like pictures of dead cats or cats almost dead. Not dead cats. I'm going to give to the dead cat fund. Thank you very much. But like they'll show you, they'll show you pictures of children, you know, or they'll show you pictures of poverty. They'll show you pictures of brokenness trying to motivate you by your emotions, right? I think God's plan is bigger than that too. There's another way that they do this. And they, we do this in the West a lot. And I have used this tactic at times, you know. And, and that is, is that I'll say to people, or we'll work on people's like, hey, take a look. Look at the numbers. Look at the bang you get for your buck. If you give me a dollar, it leads to one life transformed all over the world. It gives clothes, foods, you know, it gives medicine, and a house over their head. For one dollar a day, for the next 50 years, it provides all these things for them. And you're thinking, for a dollar a day? I can do this for the next 50 years? That's amazing. What an investment. Right? What's that working on? That's working on your mind. It's triggering your mind. But none of those things are really after what God's after. God's after your heart. God wants your heart. He wants you to give because you want to give because of your love for him. He wants your heart. He doesn't need your money. And you've heard me say this. He wants your heart. Because he wants you to live a life that's full of him, full of his blessing. And this story in the New Testament in Acts, the end of Paul's life, is a great word as we look at grace, the grounds of giving, of Paul telling us, if you want to give in the way that God really desires, you need to be grounded in grace. Let's read this. This is Acts 20, 25 verse, and then 32 through 37. And it says this. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. So that's just Paul, verse 25, I wanted to show you that I wasn't lying. He's not planning to see anybody again. He's planning to go to Jerusalem and then be killed. And then he says these things to them. And now I commend you to God and the word of grace. There's the first thing. I commend you to live a life of grace. 
which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. And all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus. How he himself said, and then he goes on to say this beatitude. This is the second thing he commends to them. It is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was, such, and there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him. And it goes on to say, because they knew that they would never see him. They feared that they would never see him again. And so there's this deep affection in the relationship of these men. And Paul's basically saying, look, these are the two things. These are the words that I have to leave with you, to encourage you, to inspire you, to ground you in your ministry. And the first one he says is, don't forget about grace. Don't forget that you are grounded in grace, that you are a sinner saved by grace, not of your own works, but has been done for you, that you are a sinner, that Christ died for you, and that he loves you as you are, and that he is his work. It's the work of Christ in your life that grounds you. And so he says, he's basically encouraging, so live a life that is consistent with grace. And as you do, as you live in grace, in the ground of grace, as you're growing in grace, Expect that you will be blessed. Expect that God will show up in your life. But the very next thing that Paul talks about isn't what I think we would expect. I mean, what does he mean? I mean, for him to tell them to be grounded in grace, to live under the gospel, to live a consistent life in the gospel, we would expect, wouldn't we? But he kind of comes in sideways at us a little bit, and he says, now, the second thing I want you to remember, it's more of a blessing You'll be more blessed if you give than if you expect to receive. What's Paul getting at here? I think he means this. As we understand grace, as we live under grace, our identity comes from what Christ has done for us. As we understand the love that Christ has for us and we are grounded in this grace, as we are grounded in love, we will be able to freely give, radically and generously give any and all the things of this world that we have, that we will let go of them because what is most important to us, what we are grounded in is not the things of the world, not other people and what they think about us, but we are grounded in our love for Christ that Christ is our greatest treasure. And as we live this way, we will experience the blessings of Christ. Now, what does it mean to be blessed? What's Paul talking about here? More blessed to give than to receive. What does he mean by blessed here? I want to tell you, because that word has just been like taken way out of context. And, you know, if you no, I'm not going to make fun of people. But anyway, the word blessed means this. When we are in God's presence... We're blessed. Why? Because when we're in God's presence, experiencing God's love, we are as we should be. We are more closely who we're supposed to be when we're experiencing God's blessing in our life than any other time. Let me, I'm going to take it to an extreme level here, okay? Boom, boom, boom. Back to the garden. Whenever we're in the garden with God, Adam and Eve, before sin entered the world, they are in, they are in his presence fully, right? Right? There's no darkness. There's no shame. There's no sin. They are as they should be before God. 
They are right with God, emotionally, spiritually, and physically. They have an awesome relationship with God. They're doing high fives with God. They're talking with God verbally. It's like, it's, the, it's just amazing, okay? They're connected. They have no identity issues. They know they are loved as they are. They are perfect as they are, created in their Father's image. They know his love perfectly. Spiritually, they're connected with him. In every way, all of their life is perfect, right? And so, and in that environment, in the Garden of Eden, one of the things that God was doing with them was he was telling them, hey, tend to the garden. I've given you authority. I've given you rule over all these things and expand the garden into the rest of the world. Bless the world with my love. As the garden grows, so will people's experience of my blessing. So will people's experience of, my, of their understanding of me and their relationship with me. They will to be my children in this perfect environment in the Garden of Eden. And the Garden of Eden was always intended to go out into the world. Okay, so what happened? Adam and Eve screwed up. They sinned. And the perfect relationship that they had with God God, was broken. And the blessing of being with God emotionally, physically, and spiritually was broken. It was gone. It was gone in a way that we could never and we will never fully understand until we're in heaven. But total depravity is one of the theological terms given to our relationship you know, in, in respect to God, that we are totally broken. There's no good in us, that we have lost and the image of God in which we are created has been marred, jacked up, and broken forever. And so in the same way we were blessed to be with God in his presence. We are now separated from that blessing, emotionally, spiritually, and physically, okay? Christ comes, he buys back with his death what we've lost. And every time we come forward and we experience God's blessing in prayer ministry, we experience God's presence in prayer ministry, and our hearts healed a little bit, what's happening? We're being blessed. We're experiencing a little bit of the Garden of Eden again. We're experiencing a little bit of what we've lost. When we hear a good talk and it changes the way we think about God, what's happening? We're we're being blessed. We're experiencing a little bit of the Garden of Eden. And we're thinking and emotionally we're connecting with God in a way that we used to in the Garden of Eden. It's being restored. Whenever there's worship, you come to church, right? You're driving to church. And you're driving with one hand, and you're doing the back-fisted throat punch to your kids on the way here. And you're angry with your kids, and you're upset with your kids. And they're like wrestling in the back, doing the choke holds on each other. You're like, just shut up. we got to get to church. And you're screaming at them. You're yelling at them. And you're thinking, this is what's the consequence of sin, total depravity. You're experiencing total depravity on the way to, on the way to church. You are. And you come into worship like we just had. And all of a sudden you're like, you're encountering God's love for you. And you're able to love God and you're worshiping him. And you're not thinking or remembering anything about the car. It's just like gone. Well, what's happening there? You're being blessed. You're you're experiencing the presence of God like Adam and Eve did in the garden. And all of what you should be, all of what you were created for is being realized in that moment of worship. That's what's happening And so this is a crazy statement that Paul's saying when you understand it's more blessed to give than to receive. He's saying this, as you're able to receive God's blessing as his child, become who you're created to be, one of the ways that you will do that is how you give. And listen to this, and as you give generously, 
radically in crazy ways, you heal the world. You extend the Garden of Eden. You complete what's been broken. You restore what's been lost. That's what Paul's saying. As we move and experience the power of God in our life through grace and let go of the things that we are identified with in the world, we're free from those things. We're able to give in a way that brings healing and blessing to our life so we become who we were created to be, but it also goes out and heals the world. So why don't we do that? Why aren't we healing the world? Why isn't it, it easy for us to get big chunks of money anytime we want? Why isn't it easy for us to just go like, I'm downsizing from my Escalade to my VW 1972 bus and I'm giving the money to God? Why, why do we have a hard time doing that? I mean, I just told you, these are Paul's final words. I'm telling you, it will change your life. You'll experience more of God's blessing like you're created to be. You'll become who God's made you to be. And you'll heal the world. But we don't do it, do we? It's because we have our hand in the cookie jar of the world and we like the way that it tastes. What did Paul say? He says, I didn't covet gold, I didn't covet silver, and I didn't covet garments. Then I was able to heal and to help the weak. It was because I wasn't in love with gold, I wasn't in love with silver, I wasn't in love with anything of the world, is what some commentators would say, because I had no love for the world, I had no need for the world. I had no need for the world because treasure, my treasure was Christ, because I understood grace, and I was able to not go to the things of the world to find my comfort, to find my healing, to find my peace, to find my rest, and that's what's happening but we kind of want both. You see, Jesus, I have to stand for this illustration. You see, Jesus doesn't ever say, don't make money an idol. Money's bad. He talks a lot about money. But Jesus says this instead. He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And what he means by that is he says, how you spend money is a good indicator of what your treasure is. How you spend money, what's easy for you to spend money on is an indicator of what your idols are. Not that money's your idol, because we would never say that money's our idol, but where and how we spend money is an indicator of what we treasure the most. What is it for you? Is it your children? Is it security? Is it saving money so you have a nest egg and you can trust and lean back on that? Is it living in a certain neighborhood that's safe so you can protect your family? What is it that you find easy for you to spend money on? Is it... You know, is it, is it, well, if I have these clothes and I'll look pretty or on, you know, the, your hair or whatever, what is it that it's easy for you to spend money on? That's an indicator of, of what your treasure is. You know, for me, my love language, you're afraid of what I'm going to say right now, aren't you? You think I'm going to say physical touch. It's not. It is, but it's, it's, it's gift giving. It's gift giving. I love to receive gifts, but I love to give gifts. I love to surprise people. I love to give gifts. I lo- I'm a giver. I'm a massive giver. And I wish there was a good, noble reason behind it, but there's not. There's a selfish, insecure, pathetic reason around it. As I want people to like me. And because my love language is giving, or is re- I like gifts, I think if I give things to other people, then they'll like me. And so for me, what that tells me is that because I will easily spend money on people, 
So, and what that means is like we have a, Laura's had to budget me to like to the T in every area. Like birthday gifts, budget. Christmas presents for her, budget. Christmas presents for her kids, budget. Birthday parties for friends throughout the year, budget. Everything in our life is budgeted or I would just be like, honey, honey, we just got our kids a 19 whatever, never super cool Mustang car for their first car or whatever. It's awesome because I want my kids to love me and I think that will make them love me because... Instead of Jesus being my greatest treasure, how people think about me is more important. How people perceive me is more important. My kids being safe might be more important, and so I'll spend money there. But what school my kids go to, I think will give them a good education, so I'll spend some money there. And it's easy, and it's a good reason, and we justify it because it's healthy. Or maybe it's because, you know, if I, if I look this way... If I, have, if, I, if I dress this way or if I weigh this amount, you know, so we spend money on gyms and we justify it with exercise because we're supposed to be healthy. We, where is it that you spend money? And this is what the illustration is like. It's like, yes, we want to love God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength. And then we put our hand in the pocket of the world, the cookie jar of the world, and we say, oh, but I find a lot of my comfort here, here, right here. My comfort's here. And so the Lord says, I want you to be able to give generously. And I want you to be able to give wholeheartedly. And we're like, yes, Jesus, I can't. I'm stuck. Why am I stuck? Because we've become so familiar and comfortable that our peace and our rest and ultimately our treasure is in the things of the world. Because we've not experienced the grace or understood the grace. We're not living under the first principle that Paul says. So Paul tells us that if we're going to be able to experience a blessed life, to become who we're created to be, to be the way that we are made to be in the garden, we have to live under grace and understand grace, make Jesus our treasure. And as we do, we will bring healing to the world. That, this is the only way your heart is healed. This is the only way that what God is after, the way that God wants you to give, ever changes. It's the only way it ever changes. And there's nothing that I can say or do that will make that happen. It's only through the work and the power of the Spirit. Spirit, he's the only one that can change our heart to understand and make Jesus our treasure. But how do we do that? So how do we do this? How do we do it? How, how, how are we going to do this? Like, how do we make Jesus our treasure? It's understanding this. It's going back to the first point. It's going back to grace. What does it mean to live a life of grace? In simple Sunday school terms, grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. That's like a Sunday school definition. We get God's blessings, God's beauty, God's perfection, God's love, God's mercy at Christ's expense, okay? I get the riches of God and all that God has for me, but Jesus had to pay for it. That's grace. I didn't deserve it. I didn't earn it. He did it. He gave it to me, and that's grace. And so the richness of God Understanding that, receiving that, the work of what Christ has done. You see, as we believe that, as we see the treasure that we are to Christ, we then make, tri- make Christ our treasure. As we understand what Christ has done for us, that we are his treasure, that he has died to make us his treasure, as we see that, as we understand that, then we will make him our treasure. And as Christ becomes our greatest treasure, we will let go of the things of the world. Every other treasure in your life, 
every other treasure in your life that makes you feel like you're okay, a big life insurance policy, if I die, I'll be okay, where I live, like I said, how my kids are doing, like I said, how I look, if I look this way, I'll be okay, if I get married, I'll be okay, if I have a family with healthy kids, I'll be okay, all of those things will require you to die to get them. You will become enslaved by every other treasure that you seek to find rest and peace and life from. Every other treasure requires you to become enslaved to it. And until you get it, you will do whatever it takes to get it. And you will backstab people. You will sacrifice your marriage for it. You will compromise your values at work because you have to have it. And when you don't have it, you get all panicked. But Jesus, Jesus is the only treasure who died to get you. Every other treasure requires that you die, become enslaved to it, to get it. But Jesus is the only treasure that has died to get you. You see, if you think about why Jesus came, if you think about Jesus, why did he come for us? Like, why did he come? He came for us. He had everything. He had a perfect relationship with his Father and the Spirit. Perfect, perfect. He was totally content, totally happy in every way. He was perfect. He had all the glorious riches of the, of the heavens. He had the universe. He had everything. The one thing he didn't have was you. The one thing he didn't have was what he treasured the most. And it was you. And so when he came to earth and lived as a baby, he gave up his glory. When he died on the cross, he gave up his father's love and relationship. He gave it all up. He died to make you his treasure. He is the only one who's done that for you. Your career won't die for you. Your spouse won't die for you. Your kids won't die for you. And if they did... Sean, don't look at Nancy. She's not dying for you. I saw you look at her. Give her that little smirk look. He just leaned over. He's like, I'll die for you, baby, anytime. So what? It doesn't do anything for their sin or their brokenness. Jesus is the only treasure who has died to make you his. He's the only one. And when we understand that and we see that, We see how much Jesus loves us, the extent to what he's done to make us his treasure, then we'll make him ours. And as we make Jesus our treasure, then the things of the world that we're holding on to are just things. They're not bad things. They're just things. Things we're willing to let go of. Things we're willing to sell off. Things we're we're willing to give to God. And as you're able to do that, as you're able to do that, you will experience life and blessing the way Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden. You'll become more complete, more whole, more of who you're made to be in Christ. And as you become this blessed person, free from these things that have enslaved you, you will heal the world. It's no mistake that Paul chose these words. They are powerful words to not only transform us, but also transform the world.
you know, I was thinking of a clever illustration, and I just couldn't come up with one. I felt like God just said, there's none. There's nothing that better represents my grace than myself. You know, and there's a story of uh, the treasure in the field, right? And we've been, taught, we've been taught that story so many times. You know, there was a treasure buried in the field. And farmer, you know, farmer Joe stumbles upon it. And, 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 and the field doesn't belong to him, but he wants the treasure. And so what, what does he do? He goes and sells everything, right? He goes and sells everything so that he can get the field and have the treasure that's in the field. And then someone says, and you should also go and do likewise. Sell everything. Sell everything. And either people use your mind, your will, but they never aim at your heart. They never tell you. They never tell you what the real meaning of that story is, which is, look, Jesus was walking in a field one day, and he found you dead, lifeless, with no hope, just like the Samaritan on the side of the road. You had no hope, and Jesus went and sold everything, gave everything so that he could purchase you and make you his treasure. There's story after story like this in the Bible. But the only way they become real in our life is through the power and the work of the Spirit. So what we're going to do is I'm going to create some space. We're all going to do this. The service isn't over yet. We're, we're going to have ministry at the very end. But I want everybody to have an opportunity to make Jesus their treasure. To be reminded by the Holy Spirit the price that he has paid to make us his. But it's only a work of the Spirit in our heart that will help us see that. Not clever analogies or storytelling. It's a work of the Spirit. So we're going to stand. Lex is going to come forward with the band. And we're going to allow God to come and speak to our heart. Minister to us. Remind us of the treasure that we are to him. And as we're reminded of that, we're going to ask him to come and then shape, speak to our heart about making him our treasure. And then as we kind of move into that, I'm going to see where God's moving, and then we're going to move into a time of worship. We're going to be able to respond and worship to God's love for us. And then following that time, we'll be able to come forward and have ministry and see what God has for us this morning. So why don't we stand?